0: Good morning, I'm your reader, Paula Carezzi, and it's time for our birthdays. Bobby D. Gregory of Hampton, happy birthday to you. And Rex Bright in Bondurant, we wish you the happiest of birthdays. And Robert Hahn of Belmond, a big birthday shout out to you. If today is also your birthday and you didn't hear your name, give us a call so we can be sure to get your birthday on our list. Here's a reminder that our program schedule has changed dramatically so that we can get as much local information to as many listeners as possible. The Fort Dodge Messenger will be read at 7 a.m., Monday through Friday. The Mason City Globe Gazette will be read at 8 a.m., Monday through Friday. Your Des Moines Register will continue to be read from 9 a.m. to noon. The Cedar Rapids Gazette will be read at noon, seven days a week. The Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier will be read at 1 p.m., seven days a week. The Dubuque Telegraph Herald will be read at 2 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil will be read at 3 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Sioux City Journal will be read at 4 p.m., seven days a week. The Ames Tribune will be read at 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. The Midweek Shopping Cart will be read each Wednesday at 9 p.m. We will stay with this schedule until further notice. Now let's get back to the news with our first story from the USA Today. Cherise Jones of USA Today reports in in today's top story that the jobless toll has topped 26 million. More than 26 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits over the past five weeks A record breaking number revealing the devastating toll the coronavirus pandemic has taken on the economy. About 4.4 million people filed for for unemployment last week alone, the Labor Department said Thursday, lower than the roughly 5.2 million who filed the week before, and down from the all time high of 6.86 million applications in late March. Though last week's tally was lower, the number of claims was still staggering building toward a projected unemployment rate of 16.4% in May that would be the highest since the Great Depression, according to Morgan Stanley. There were more claims filed over the five weeks than there were jobs created since the economic downturn in 2008. The nation's economy began to shut down last month as businesses closed and most residents were told to stay home to slow the spread of the coronavirus air travel ground to a near halt, restaurant dining all but disappeared, and shopping was limited mainly to the grocery store or online sites, as 43 states said most residents should remain inside. Companies faced with dwindling customers and revenue began laying off and furloughing employees, and economists say claims will keep mounting as the economy continues to sputter Cash-strapped local governments start to cut jobs, and gig workers apply for relief they could not have received in the past. Quote, claims declined for a third straight week, a positive development. Rubila Faruqi, chief U.S. economist for the research consultancy High Frequency Economics, wrote in an investor's note, she continued, but filings remained at a high level. We cannot be sure of the magnitude of job losses in April, but are certain they will be shockingly high. End quote. Oxford Economics had a similarly bleak outlook, predicting a 14% unemployment rate for the month of April and projecting that it may take two years for the country to regain the millions of jobs lost during the pandemic. Quote, we expect total job losses during the pandemic to approach 30 million, Oxford wrote in a note to investors adding that a recovery in the labor market would be slow and jobs won't rebound to their 2020 levels until 2022. Jobless claims may also continue to swell because the $2.2 trillion federal emergency stimulus package approved in March expanded the number of people who are eligible for unemployment benefits, including those who've gone from full-time to part-time work. Quote, this is just the tip of the iceberg since overall job losses in April could be 10 to 20 times larger than those in March, said Dante D'Antonio of Moody's Analytics. He wrote in a note that among workers with full-time positions in February, 1.4 percent or more than 1.6 million shifted to part-time schedules in March, the largest share in more than a decade quote, assuming the lion's share of that increase is the result of COVID-19 means that most of those workers are newly eligible for unemployment insurance benefits, he wrote. Quote, this is just the tip of the iceberg since overall job losses in April could be 10 to 20 times larger than those in March, end quote. Jennifer Brennan is one of the millions trying to get help. A massage therapist who has her own practice in Silver Spring, Maryland, Brennan was heartened when she learned the $2.2 trillion federal stimulus package approved in March would allow the self-employed to get unemployment insurance for the first time. Quote, there was a sense of relief for sure, says Brennan, who had to close her business last month. Quote, and then days went by, weeks went by, End quote. She tried to file a jobless claim with the state of Maryland on March 29 only to be told the system wasn't set up yet to process applications from the self-employed. She recently learned that she will finally be able to make a claim starting Friday. Quote, it's been a long wait, she says, and there's no guarantee I'll get it, end quote. Brennan has been relying on her dwindling savings and the few hundred dollars she earns teaching yoga classes that are live-streamed. Quote, I haven't had to tango with creditors yet, she said. I'm hoping I won't, end quote. She is worried about having enough money to survive, now and in the future. Quote, I'm actually a little bit depressed, Brennan says, adding that she has to work closely with clients, which may be difficult amid lingering worries about COVID-19. Quote, this great unknown is very much weighing on me, End quote. In another top headline, new round of rescue aid passed by House. This article is written by Crystal Hayes of USA Today. The House approved a nearly half-trillion-dollar emergency bill Thursday that provides more funds for struggling hospitals and will rescue a small business loan program that was quickly depleted by companies impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. The measure, which passed 388 to 5 with one lawmaker voting present, will now head to President Donald Trump for his signature. The president has signaled he was ready to approve the bill. Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined four Republicans, Republicans Thomas Massey, Jody Heist, Ken Buck, and Andy Biggs, in voting against the measure. Independent Representative Justin Amash voted present. The $484 billion measure offers more funds for the Paycheck Protection Program, which was halted last week after dispersing all of its initial $349 billion. The bill provides $320 billion to revive the program, which offers loans to small businesses. Those loans can be forgiven by the government if at least 75% of the money goes to keeping employees on the payroll, basically amounting to grants for businesses. Of the small business funds, $60 billion will be set aside for community-based lenders, smaller banks, and credit unions, to assist smaller businesses that don't have established relationships with big banks and had a harder time accessing the funds in the first round of loans. The measure also bolsters the Small Business Administration's disaster loan and grant programs, which also dried up. The legislation includes $75 billion to help overwhelmed hospitals and $25 billion for a new coronavirus testing program, two provisions Democrats pushed for in negotiations. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, a Democrat from New York, said the testing funds was one of the last pieces agreed to and requires the administration to produce a plan on how it will increase testing across the country. The House tweaked its procedures for Thursday's vote to meet social distancing guidelines. Members voted in alphabetical order and were allowed on the House floor only in small groups to prevent further spread of the virus. The House chamber was cleaned in between votes, with staff quickly cleaning surfaces before lawmakers entered again. Seven members of Congress have been diagnosed with COVID-19. It was the first time in a month that many lawmakers had been back to the U.S. Capitol, though not all of the body's 435 members made it back to Washington for the vote. The House on Thursday also took up a resolution to establish a congressional committee dedicated to providing oversight over the coronavirus crisis and trillions of dollars in relief money. The resolution was approved in a 212 to 182 vote. This means small business stimulus measure is the fourth bill Congress has approved to counter the pandemic. More aid may be on the way as congressional leaders and Trump acknowledged another measure will be needed. Here are the bills Congress has passed to counter the pandemic. First, $8.3 billion to find a vaccine and supplies and ensure state and local health providers were prepared. It was signed by the President on March 6th. Second, $192 billion for paid sick and family leave, food stamp benefits, and free coronavirus testing. Trump signed the bill March 18th. Third, $2 trillion for widespread financial relief for people and businesses hurting because of the economic impacts of coronavirus. The package included checks for Americans, bolstered unemployment benefits, and the establishment of the PPP. That's the Paycheck Protection Program. The $2 trillion package, the largest relief measure in U.S. history, was signed by Trump on March 27th. The legislation includes $75 billion to help overwhelmed hospitals and $25 billion for a new coronavirus testing program, two provisions Democrats pushed for in negotiations. Joel Shannon and Grace Houck of USA Today hit the highlights of today's top health stories. As Americans are grappling with the coronavirus crisis, political protests have continued across the nation, and more are set to take place Saturday even with states beginning to announce plans for phased reopenings. antibody testing is going to play a major role in those plans. Testing in the U.S. is starting to ramp up as government officials discuss when they can reopen communities and health experts survey hotspots. Meanwhile, President Donald Trump's Thursday comments about using disinfectant and light to treat the virus have drawn widespread criticism. It's not the first time the president's medical advice has been called into question. Trump has repeatedly touted hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine as treatment, which the FDA now says is not safe or effective. The virus has killed more than 197,000 people globally, according to Johns Hopkins University data. More than 2.8 million confirmed cases have been reported, including more than 905,000 in the U.S. Even if you can find an antibody test, it may not tell you much. From coast to coast, Epidemiologists are using some of the many antibody tests that have entered the market recently to determine how much COVID-19 has spread. The importance of these tests are not lost on Americans who are itching to go back to work, see loved ones, and find out if they have been infected with the virus. Many have questions about where to find antibody tests, how they work, and if they can even be trusted. There aren't easy answers. With little public data about the test's accuracy, Experts question whether they will give people false reassurances by indicating they have immunity to the disease. Trump's medical advice draws criticisms. Since the first coronavirus case was diagnosed in the United States more than three months ago, President Donald Trump has repeatedly made assertions about the illness and floated treatments that medical experts in his own administration have had to walk back. From floating the idea in February that the virus would, quote, miraculously disappear, to touting an untested anti-malaria drug at his daily press conferences, Trump has often ventured far afield of science to put a positive light on the pandemic. The latest example of that came Thursday, when Trump suggested that scientists look into whether ultraviolet light or disinfectants could play some role in treating patients with the disease. His remarks prompted a rebuke from doctors and urgent warnings from state health agencies warning against self-treatments. USDA let poultry plants put workers close together even as they got sick. As coronavirus cases mounted at meatpacking plants this month, the federal government granted 15 poultry processors waivers to cut chickens faster, usually by crowding more workers onto their production lines. Overall, Poultry plants with such waivers are at least 10 times more likely than the meatpacking industry as a whole to have coronavirus cases among workers, USA Today and the Midwest Center for Investigative Reporting found. The U.S. Department of Agriculture granted more of those waivers in one week in April than it had in any previous month over the past eight years of the program's existence. Three of the 15 poultry plants granted new waivers in April, have reported outbreaks of COVID-19, the media outlets found. Another three plants that already had waivers also have outbreaks. Some 53 poultry plants nationwide have the waivers. As of Friday morning, 66 of the nation's more than 6,400 meatpacking plants have had documented coronavirus outbreaks affecting more than 3,700 workers, according to USA Today and Midwest Center Tracking. About 400 of the plants are large-scale. Will there be a vaccine by 2021? Experts say that may be unrealistic. In a series of breathtaking multi-billion-dollar bets, possible vaccine candidates to fight the new coronavirus are being prepared for production across the globe in one of the most dramatic examples of shortcuts and streamlining, aimed at meeting what many experts consider unrealistic U.S. target dates for a vaccine. Dr. Anthony Fauci has repeatedly said a vaccine may be ready in 12 to 18 months, but that timeline would shatter all precedents for developing a new vaccine, which typically takes many years. Manufacturing tens of millions of unproven vaccine doses on spec is unheard of. There is no certainty any will work, and if one does prove effective, getting it into the arms of people who will require the Food and Drug Administration to speed up its approval process. And UFC announces three May events in Jacksonville. On Friday, the Ultimate Fight Championship, known as the UFC, announced its plan to bring back fights in a big way, beginning with UFC 249. The May 9th pay purview will kick off a trio of events close to the public that also includes dates on May 13th and May 16th at ViStar Veterans Memorial Arena in Jacksonville, Florida, with the regulatory oversight of the Florida State Athletic Commission. The UFC's plan, while still controversial amid the global coronavirus pandemic, has received the full endorsement of Jacksonville Mayor Lenny Curry. Quote, the UFC organization is a renowned entertainment brand that's presented a safe and sensible plan to use this Jacksonville location, and we are thrilled to have our city highlighted nationally, Curry said. UFC President Dana White, who in the past has scoffed at the dangers of coronavirus, told ESPN that they intend to go above and beyond to ensure fighter safety. Deirdre Green and Ma- Maureen Grappi of USA Today report, virus puts governors, quote, almost in a no-win situation, end quote. A public health crisis, an economic crash, nascent protests, and presidential pressure and a high-stakes election that could turn on their performance. Welcome to the perilous political life of swing state governors. From Florida to Wisconsin, governors in both parties are walking on a tightrope with increased deaths on one side and economic devastation on the other, all as President Donald Trump shakes the wire with provocative tweets and pronouncements. Quote, they are almost in a no-win situation, said Susan McManus, a political scientist and professor emerita with the University of South Florida. Quote, they're facing the most unusual and most intensely pressured events, end quote, of a lifetime. Take Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, a Democrat. Trump has cast her as a poster child for the nanny state, criticizing the coronavirus restrictions she has imposed and encouraging protesters who want her to reopen the state. Michigan has been hard hit by the pandemic, with 2,977 deaths and more than 35 cases as of Thursday. It's also a pivotal battleground state in the 2020 presidential election and a state Trump narrowly won four years ago. As thousands of demonstrators converged on Michigan's Capitol last week, some showed their allegiance to the president by waving Trump 2020 banners and wearing red Make America Great Again hats. But Whitmer has been unapologetic in pushing back against Trump defending her strict social distancing orders and calling out protesters for ignoring public health precautions. Quote, we have a disproportionate problem in the state of Michigan, Whitmer said on NBC's Meet the Press on Sunday, and that's precisely why we have to take a more aggressive stand, End quote. Whitmer's outspokenness and her frequent national media appearances have burnished her image among Democrats and fueled speculation that former Vice President Joe Biden may choose her as his running mate. But it's also firing up Republicans in Michigan and making her a bigger Trump target, said David Dulio, director of the Center for Civic Engagement at Oakland University. But Trump also has a tough political calculus to make as he attacks Whitmer and tries to woo Michigan voters, Dulio said. Quote, he's walking a similar tightrope. You can hear it at times when he's giving his briefings. He will sometimes take a shot at the governor and then in the next breath say how much he loves Michigan, Dulio said. It's this dance, end quote. It's not just Trump and Democratic governors engaged in political tango. In Florida, GOP Governor Ron DeSantis is under pressure to deliver his state for Trump in the November election, and his handling of the coronavirus outbreak has come under intense scrutiny. DeSantis waited until April 1st to issue a stay-at-home order after cases of the virus hit nearly 7,000 in the state and 87 Floridians had died. And his order deemed religious services so-called essential, a controversial decision that played to the GOP base in the state. Quote, he doesn't want to get crosswise with freedom of religion because that is critical to his reelection and also to the president's, McManus said. Now DeSantis faces pressure from the White House to lift the statewide restrictions, even as Florida remains a disease hotspot. Quote, Trump would like to have some of the larger states Republican swing states get up and running within reason, said Ron Pierce, a GOP consultant based in Tampa. Pierce said Florida Republicans are also deeply worried about the economic consequences of the shutdown. About 1.5 million Floridians have filed unemployment claims since the crisis hit, but a poorly designed system has created a bottleneck in processing claims, leaving DeSantis vulnerable to attacks. That problem also could cloud Trump's prospects in Florida. In four national polls in April that surveyed Americans' views of Trump and their governor's handling of the crises, respondents were much more likely to approve of their governor's responses than Trump's. Quote, They're much more on the ground dealing with these problems day to day, said Terry Madonna, director of the Center for Politics and Public Affairs at Franklin and Marshall College in Pennsylvania quote, it could be that they're closer to the voters and therefore able to explain better to their constituents what they're doing and why they're doing it, end quote. A Washington Post University of Maryland poll published Tuesday found that 54 percent of Americans disapproved of Trump's handling of the outbreak, but 72 percent of respondents approved of their governor's response. Elizabeth Wise of USA Today reports regarding COVID-19 treatment, FDA says hydroxychloroquine, touted by Trump, is not safe or effective. The Food and Drug Administration is warning against the use of two drugs President Donald Trump has repeatedly touted as possible, quote, game-changer in the fight against the coronavirus. The Drug Safety Commission, published Friday, said the agency cautions against the use of hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine for COVID-19 treatment outside of hospitals or clinical trials, Due to the risk of heart rhythm problems. Quote, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine have not been shown to be safe and effective for treating or preventing COVID 19, the FDA warned. Both can cause abnormal heart rhythms and a dangerously rapid heart rate, the statement said. The FDA explicitly warned consumers not to buy the drugs from online pharmacies without a prescription from a healthcare professional. Quote, consumers should not take any form of chloroquine that has not been prescribed for them by a healthcare professional, the agency stated on its website. The FDA communication may bring an end to confusing and unsubstantiated claims about the two drugs. They began with tiny anecdotal studies in China, were amplified by an eccentric French microbiologist who likes to tweak the establishment, and made their way to the White House, where the president repeatedly suggested the help the drugs might help, saying, quote, what have you got to lose? Quote, this is an important and timely statement from the FDA, said Rajesh Gandhi, an infectious diseases physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and professor at Harvard Medical School. Quote, it reminds clinicians and the public that there are no proven or FDA-approved treatments for COVID-19 and highlights the potential side effects of hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, including serious and life-threatening heart rhythm problems, end quote. Hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are FDA-approved to treat or prevent malaria. Hydroxychloroquine is also FDA-approved to treat autoimmune conditions such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. Doctors, including Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, Anthony Fauci, have cautioned for months that without well-run clinical trials, it is impossible to know if either drug is effective or safe to treat COVID-19, the disease caused by the new coronavirus. While multiple clinical trials testing the drug's efficacy and safety in COVID-19 patients are underway, early results indicate the answer is no. A study posted on April 21st involving 368 patients with confirmed cases of COVID-19 treated at Veterans Health Administration medical centers, found there were more deaths among those given hydroxychloroquine than those receiving standard care. In addition, the drug made no difference in the need for a breathing machine. Quote, these findings highlight the importance of awaiting the results of ongoing prospective, randomized controlled studies before widespread adoption of these drugs, the study authors said. A Brazilian double-blind research study published last week found chloroquine to be so dangerous at high doses the trial was shut down after six days. The study found one quarter of the patients taking the anti-malaria medication developed potentially deadly changes in the electrical system regulating their heartbeats. While a small and imperfect study, it highlighted the compelling need for more rigorous data. A New York man has... been charged with hoarding tons of protective gear, jacking up price on masks and gowns. Kevin Johnson of USA Today reports that a New York man accused of amassing tons of scarce protective equipment sought by nurses and doctors treating COVID-19 patients was charged Friday with hoarding and price gouging related to sales of surgical masks, medical gowns, gloves, and hand sanitizer. Federal prosecutors alleged that Amardeep Singh, known as Bobby, who previously sold clothing and sneakers, began marketing a new product line in mid-March as medical professionals scrambled to find gear to shield themselves from the deadly coronavirus. Singh's new business, allegedly operated out of a Long Island warehouse, first caught the attention of authorities March 18th when the owner was cited by Nassau County officials for engaging in so-called unconscionable trade practices. Related to the resale of face masks packaged in Ziploc bags. The New York Attorney General followed up April 1st, issuing a cease and desist order against Singh's business. But federal prosecutors said that Singh continued to stock the equipment, including 2.2 tons of medical gowns and 253 pounds of digital thermometers. According to court documents, Singh allegedly offered face shields for $9.99 after acquiring them at a cost of $3.10. Disposable face masks were marked up from $0.07 cents each to $1, while boxes of gloves, acquired for as little as $2.50 each, were priced at $7.99. During April 14th seizures searches of Singh's retail store and warehouse, U.S. Postal Inspectors seized 23 pallets of equipment, including 100,000 face masks, 10,000 surgical gowns, nearly 2,500 full-body isolation suits, and more than 5,500,000 pairs of disposable gloves. Quote, the criminal complaint describes a defendant who allegedly saw the devastating COVID-19 pandemic as an opportunity to make illegal profits on needed personal protective equipment, said New Jersey U.S. Attorney Craig Car- Carpinito, who is leading a federal enforcement effort related to pandemic-related hoarding and price gouging crimes? Quote, the Department of Justice and its partners will intervene whenever profiteers and scammers break the law by capitalizing on the public's fear to enrich themselves. End quote. Singh could not be immediately reached for comment, and court records did not identify a defense attorney assigned to the case. Charged with violations of the Defense Production Act, Singh faces a maximum punishment of a year in prison if convicted. And the Navy has recommended that Captain Brett Crozier be reinstated. The top Navy officer has recommended the reinstatement of the aircraft carrier captain fired for sending a fraught email to commanders pleading for faster action to protect his crew from a coronavirus outbreak, officials familiar with the investigation, said Friday. Admiral Mike Gilday recommended that Navy Captain Brett Crozier Be returned to his ship, said the officials, who spoke on condition of anonymity to discuss the results of an investigation that have not yet been made public. If approved, his recommendation would end a drama that has rocked the Navy leadership, sent thousands of USS Theodore Roosevelt crew members ashore in Guam for quarantine, and impacted the fleet across the Pacific, a region critical to America's national security interests. Gilday met with General Mark Milley, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, on Tuesday and with Defense Secretary Mark Esper on Friday morning to lay out his recommendations. An official says Esper has asked for a delay in any public announcement while he considers the recommendation. Earlier in the day, Esper's chief spokesman, Jonathan Hoffman, had suggested that Esper was going into the matter with an open mind and said, quote, he is generally inclined to support Navy leadership in their decision, end quote. The extraordinary episode has captivated a public already overwhelmed by the pandemic. And it has played out as the military copes with the coronavirus by reducing training, scaling back recruiting, and halting troop movements, even as it deploys tens of thousands of National Guard and other troops to help civilian agencies deal with virus outbreaks across the country. Crozier was abruptly removed earlier this month by acting Navy Secretary Thomas Mobley, who resigned days later. His return to the ship would reunite him with crew members so upset about his firing that many crowded together on the deck and applauded and chanted his name as he strode off the ship. As of Friday, 856 sailors on the USS Theodore Roosevelt have tested positive for the virus and four are hospitalized. One sailor, who was from Arkansas, has died, and more than 4,200 of the ship's nearly 5,000 crew members have been moved onto the island for quarantine. As that outbreak continues, a second Navy ship at sea is now also reporting a growing number of infections. Navy officials said at least 18 crew members on the USS KID naval destroyer have tested positive, and one sailor has been evacuated to the U.S. The Kidd, with its crew of 350, is off the Pacific coast of Central America, where it has been operating as part of a U.S. counter-drug mission. Clearing the aircraft carrier and its crew of the virus has proved to be difficult and complicated. Sailors who test negative after time in quarantine are suddenly showing symptoms a day or two later. The virus's bewildering behavior, which is challenging the broader international medical is making it harder to determine when the carrier might be able to return either to duty or to head home. Gilday's recommendations were first reported by the New York Times. Crozier was fired April 2nd by Modley after sending an email to several naval officers warning about the growing virus outbreak and asking for permission to isolate the bulk of his crew members on shore. It was an extraordinary move that would take the carrier out of duty in an effort to save lives. Quote, we are not at war. Sailors do not need to die. If we do not act now, we are failing to properly take care of our most trusted asset, our sailors, Crozier said in the memo. Mowgli complained that Crozier, quote, demonstrated extremely poor judgment, end quote, in the middle of a crisis, saying the captain copied too many people on the memo, which quickly went public. Mowgli also asserted that Crozier had improperly allowed sensitive information about the ship's condition to become public. A few days later, Mowgli flew out to the ship and delivered a profanity-laced condemnation of Crozier over the loudspeaker to the crew. Crozier, he said, may have been, quote, too naive or too stupid, end quote, to be commanding officer of the ship. Just hours after his comments were widely reported, Mowgli apologized, but the next day, in the face of widespread criticism, he resigned. Esper initially defended Mowgli's firing of Crozier, saying he made, quote, a very tough decision. But other military leaders, including Gilday, internally opposed the firing, saying an investigation should be conducted first. Mowgli's trip to the carrier cost him Esper's support. Esper first demanded Mowgli apologize, and a day later, accepted his resignation. President Donald Trump has expressed seeming contradictory views on the matter. He initially blasted Crozier, calling his memo, quote, terrible. But a short time later, he softened his take, saying he didn't want to destroy someone who may just have, quote, had a bad day, end quote. Now let's turn to the opinion section from the Des Moines Register. Today's Register's editorial is titled, how the kind of innovative spirit shown by an Iowa pharmacist is key to defeating COVID-19. The waiting is the hardest part. In the midst of a novel coronavirus pandemic, Iowans feel like we're doing a lot of waiting for tests, medical equipment, information, federal leadership, infection peaks, and for life to somehow return to normal. We are also waiting for scientists, doctors, and other experts to do their work. They are the ones trying treatments, conducting studies, developing vaccines, and learning best practices as they care for sick patients. They are moving fast, collaborating in unprecedented ways, and thinking outside the box. The smarts and innovation of these individuals offer the best hope for moving this country through this pandemic. Iowa pharmacist Leslie Heron is among those innovators. The owner of Sumter Pharmacy in Adel is gearing up to offer antibody testing to customers. She has ordered 1,000 tests and is hoping government red tape does not impede moving forward. As of Friday afternoon, she was still working to navigate potentially changing federal guidance. To understand why what she's doing is so important, let's pause to clarify the different tests related to the COVID-19 virus. Diagnostic tests let people know if they're currently infected. These usually involve a nasal swab, When Governor Kim Reynolds holds a news conference each weekday morning and reports positive and negative results for Iowans, she is referring to these diagnostic tests. Reynolds' announcement Tuesday of expanded diagnostic testing through the Test Iowa program was a welcome step. Antibody tests are different in an important way, particularly with a shortage of diagnostic tests and with a disease that scientists say causes mild or no symptoms among many who contract it. These serological tests can help identify who has already been infected and may have some protection from infection, as well as identify those who may still be at risk. Widespread antibody testing would let us know what percentage of the population has now been exposed to a virus our bodies had not previously encountered and how deadly the virus really is. It also would provide information needed to better understand any immunity and how long it may last. That is critical to making decisions about whether to reopen workplaces. Plasma from the blood of recovered people may also be used to treat seriously ill individuals. Many of us who have felt sick at some point in the past few months want to know if we have already had the virus and recovered. Heron, who has been a pharmacist for 35 years, understands all this. She recognizes there are questions about testing accuracy and the extent of any immunity. But she also understands that based on what is known about other infectious diseases, people are going to have an immune response. Quote, you'll be able to detect antibodies in the person's blood, she said. While she waits for the tests, she's working on setting up a testing station in her pharmacy's parking lot. Her son-in-law has built an H-shaped plexiglass shield to minimize both contact with customers and her use of personal protective equipment. Quote, it will be drive-up, she said, I will have a consent form and information online for people to fill out and then send to the pharmacy for screening, end quote. Customers will slip a hand under the shield for a finger stick to gather blood. Results should be ready in 15 minutes. She said she hasn't yet decided how much to charge. Heron is no stranger to this kind of work. Unlike many pharmacies, she already offers so-called point-of-care testing for flu and strep throat, and will soon be doing hemoglobin A1c tests for diabetics. While such routine tests are validated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, tests related to COVID-19 are being rapidly developed and have not been subjected to the same scrutiny. The FDA provided private companies with so-called regulatory flexibility for serological tests to try to get them quickly into the hands of health providers. The agency provides daily updates about the status of various tests. This category of testing has been in the news after preliminary study results in California suggested that far more people than previously thought have already had the coronavirus without getting sick. Researchers have expressed concerns, though, about the study's methodology and about the accuracy of the tests available so far. So how did Heron decide which tests to order? She researched several manufacturers and asked numerous questions before selecting one that could provide her paperwork it filed with the FDA. She also wanted a U.S.-based company with adequate accuracy data. Quote, this company had the most data and study of their tests, she said. I think the credibility is there, End quote. Heron said she doesn't know of another Iowa pharmacy this close to offering antibody tests. Being independent allows her more latitude to move forward with this type of innovation. It can also mean moving faster than the government. As of last week, the Iowa Department of Public Health had yet to provide guidance as it relates to reporting test results. Health insurers had yet to institute a process for billing. As things evolve on a daily basis, she said, she is working in conjunction with the Iowa Pharmacy Association to stay informed of changes and engage with government agencies. Quote, Ideally, there would be clear plans in place, but we cannot wait to act as long as we do so responsibly, and I want to act. For now, I'm going to collect the information, Heron said. Quote, this information is valuable, and when government entities are ready for it, I will have it. We need it to understand the epidemiology of the disease," she said. "I'm moving forward end quote. That is the spirit needed in these unprecedented times to get us to the other side of this health and economic crisis. Like other healthcare care providers, pharmacists had to quickly adjust to the novel coronavirus pandemic. For Leslie Herron, owner of Sumter Pharmacy in Adele. The first concern was protecting her workers. She closed the doors of her pharmacy in mid-March, but continued to offer drive through and delivery. Quote, out of this whole thing, the stress of being responsible for the safety and health of my employees weighed on me the most, she said. It was almost unbearable. End quote. She has not seen significant shortages in the prescription drug supply, though prescription inhalers have been difficult to find, and it's virtually impossible to keep stock of some over-the-counter items, including traditional thermometers, acetaminophen, and such products as vitamin C and zinc that are marketed to boost immunity. Quote, luckily, early on, I stocked up on immune support products because it is something I've been highly recommending. I've sold them like crazy. I think other over-the-counter sales have increased because customers can buy what they need at the drive through without entering the store, End quote. Before the pandemic, Iowans may have taken their pharmacies for granted. We tend to think of them like retail outlets that sell products. Yet pharmacists are highly trained, knowledgeable providers of prescription drugs many of us rely on to stay alive. Heron said she wishes individuals, government officials, and health insurers realize the value of these professionals lies in the health services they provide as opposed to the products they sell. If you have a question about a new insulin, a high blood pressure medication, or a negative side effect, you likely turn to your pharmacist first for answers and we may need those pharmacies more than ever for not only testing, but vaccinations. Heron already delivers vaccinations for flu, shingles, and other communicable diseases. She's looking forward to the day her pharmacy can start vaccinating customers against COVID-19. This editorial is the opinion of the Des Moines Register's editorial board. Carol Hunter, executive director, Lucas Grunmeyer, opinion editor, Andy Dominic, editorial writer, and Richard Doak and Rox Laird, editorial board members. Today's letters to the editor include one written by Terry Hancock from Des Moines titled, Popular Park Needs Pedestrians. I am retired and regularly walk two loops at Gray's Lake almost every day. I was saddened to learn that this week the parking lots were closed because of the coronavirus, which effectively closes the path surrounding the lake for virtually everyone. I am saddened for all of those who enjoy Gray's Lake Singles, couples, and families who walk the loop and who may not have had other alternatives. There is no other place in the heart of the city with such a serene view of the beauty of the lake. I have not noticed any unusual congregation of people in the parking lots, which apparently is the reason for the closure. Everyone that I notice seems to abide by the rule of distancing themselves from other walkers, joggers, and runners. Effectively closing Gray's Lake by closing the parking lots does not make sense to me. Signed, Terry Hancock of Des Moines. John Burns of West Des Moines has written, Discussion of Islam is being suppressed. Hector Avalos claims that 2nd Congressional District candidate Rick Phillips is, quote, constitutionally and historically illiterate of Islam, end quote. Actually, Phillips knows Islam uses so-called religion as its constitutional cover, and he also knows, quote, the Constitution is not a suicide pact, end quote, as it relates to Islamic mandates. Is Avalos familiar with Islam's history, its dogma? No so called literate apologist promoting Islam would defer to its empirical history as accepted by Muslims or its dogma. He re- resorts to the non sequitur of so called Christians fighting Christians, but there are no open ended calls to violence in the Judeo Christian Bible. Quran, it has at least 109 mandates to make war on infidels for all time. For the sake of debate, Muslims should be viewed apart from their faith. Not all take the mandated violence to heart, but political correctness precludes that vital discussion. Signed, John Burns of West Des Moines. And Nancy Heron of Long Grove writes, Doctor's empathy is appreciated. I wanted to thank you for publishing my daughter Christina's op-ed in the register on April 1st regarding the ban on so-called non-essential surgeries during COVID-19 and how it affected her father who was diagnosed with cancer recently. As she stated, cancer and other needed surgeries were put on hold indefinitely as we came to grips with how the virus would affect our state's health care facilities and supplies. As follow-up, we wanted to share that this story prompted two amazing physicians in the Des Moines area Dr. Robert Schreck and Dr. Richard Deming, to reach out to our family to provide assistance with our concerns. We had hoped to get the word out that the state and local health departments need a plan for those whose surgeries are being delayed, but didn't expect that we would personally receive a bit of hope through communication from professionals in the oncology field. We also received an email from Dr. Christopher Peters in response to a request for assistance from our daughter, who has worked with him. These three doctors are an outstanding example of how kind and caring individuals can truly impact the lives of others by sharing their experience, knowledge, and empathy. As a token of our gratitude to Dr. Shrek, Dr. Deming, and Dr. Peters, we have made a donation in their names to the University of Iowa Children's Hospital. Thank you to all the health professionals who have been so giving of their time and experience and have been out on the front lines so that we may all be safe and stay healthy signed Nancy Heron of Long Grove. Another column in today's opinion section of the Register is written by John Smith and Irene Clements and entitled Foster Families Fake Uni- Face Unique COVID-19 Challenges. As foster families, we open our hearts and homes to children and youths who have experienced abuse or neglect. We are proud to be part of the safety net for the most vulnerable families within our communities. Today, like the rest of the country, we face new and unforeseen challenges because of the pandemic as we work to provide the kind of comfort only family can provide during uncertain times. Children in foster care have experienced trauma, and many have special needs. The individualized supports they receive are critical to their healing process. Visits between children and their family members are also vital to their well-being, Yet most, if not all, of these services and visits now must occur online or by phone. This works better for some families and children than others, and it's a strain on everyone involved. Foster parents and social workers are doing their best to navigate this crisis and solve problems, but we need more help. More than 9,500 kids in Iowa and 430,000 nationwide live in limbo because their parents are unable to care for them right now. It's our hope that these children can be safely reunited with their parents or join a permanent family through adoption or guardianship. Until then, foster families are the glue. Most immediately, foster families need technology and high-quality broadband Internet to help children stay connected to their family, social workers, teachers, and essential health and mental health services. Foster families need access to mental health support, children and youth, and their families to help all of us navigate these tough times. Foster families need well-supported peer networks so we can also support one another. They need accurate, up-to-date local information regarding quarantining procedures, changes in court hearings and visitation, and protocols if someone contracts or is exposed to COVID-19. Foster families need priority rapid COVID-19 testing so that informed decisions can be made when making placements and they need continued foster family recruitment, support, and training online to ensure children entering foster care have the benefit of a stable family. Foster families need supplemental financial assistance to help them weather this period of economic hardship and to continue to provide stable, nurturing care for the most vulnerable children and youth. On behalf of foster families, we ask national and state leaders to provide flexibility, supports, and funding to bolster foster families as we do our part to minimize the trauma, displacement and disruption in the lives of children in foster care. In many communities, foster care services were already strained under the pressures of the opioid crisis. The impact of COVID-19 delivers another blow. We hope for responses that are appropriate and swift in order to help the children and youth in our care. This is again written by John Smith and Irene Clements. John Smith is a retired educator working part-time with the juvenile courts. John and his wife, Connie, have been foster parents for more than 30 years, fostering more than 60 children. Irene Clements and her family fostered for 27 years. In her current role as the executive director of the National Foster Parent Association, she assists the association in providing networking, education, and advocacy on a national level for all served through foster care systems. Turning to the opinion section of USA Today, Mary Ann Cusimano Love has ri- written a column titled, Coronavirus We've Social Distanced Before, We Can Keep Doing It Today. As we alter our lives to prevent the spread of the novel COVID 19, it's worth remembering that we have done this before. This is normal. Change takes courage. Adapting to stem the spread of disease is an act of valor as we all become first responders to protect our families and neighbors. Previous generations' social distancing practices strengthened public health and advanced our communities. The house that I live in, as well as those in my neighborhood and surrounding communities, were built by families fleeing disease in Washington, D.C. Afraid of contracting polio during the summer months, families moved to the western shore of the Chesapeake Bay and built cottages cottages, to distance themselves from the diseases of the city. A railroad was built to shuttle people from D.C. to nearby Chesapeake Beach. Maryland, where they could take in healthy, clean bay breezes. Before Camp David was built, President Franklin D. Roosevelt retreated from the unhealthy D.C. summers on the presidential yacht, the USS Potomac. Heightened concern over FDR's security once World War II broke out led to the creation of what we now know as Camp David, as the Secret Service worked to protect FDR from both germs and potential attacks. My workplace, the Catholic University of America, was also considered a safe place to retreat from the disease of swampy D.C. Soon after Abraham Lincoln became president, his sons Tad and Willie fell ill in the White House. Typhoid, likely from contaminated D.C. water, killed his 11-year-old son Willie. Before modern water treatment and sewage systems, troops and animals amassed to fight the Civil War brought fecal contamination to the water. Desperate to protect the rest of his family, Lincoln moved with them to Lincoln Cottage, a house that is now the Armed Forces Retirement Home in Brooklyn, located on the Bucolic Hills near what is now the Catholic University of America. With a higher elevation and some distance from the dirty Potomac, our part of Washington, D.C. was considered a safe, green space to escape disease. Lincoln worked from home here and used his time out of the office productively. In fact, This is where he wrote the final draft of the Emancipation Proclamation. My home and work communities are not exceptions. Throughout the Washington-Baltimore metro area and throughout the country are communities built by people fleeing disease. Today, we retreat to these same places, sometimes unaware of the origins of our own communities. Like COVID-19, polio was spread by contact and many infected people were asymptomatic, therefore unintentionally spreading disease. Like COVID-19, while many recovered from the disease, the risks were high enough for entire communities to engage in social distancing. Once polio was contracted, people with severe cases required ventilators, of which there were a limited supply. Prevention was and is the only means of protecting against polio, a disease that, like COVID-19, has no cure. Ask older people in their 70s and above, and they will tell you what life was like before there was a polio vaccine and the social distancing measures they undertook. My community, my parents, and grandparents survived previous disease outbreaks because social distancing works. Someday, we may have a vaccine to help prevent the transmission of COVID-19. Until then, we must work together to contain it. But moving out of the way of disease is normal. FDR said it best in a fireside chat in March of 1941, broadcasted from the USS Potomac, his own social distancing retreat. Quote, the time calls for courage and more courage. End quote. Marianne Cusimano-Love is an associate professor of international relations at the Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Today's letter to the editor in USA Today also includes one written by a number of uh, Professional associations of physicians. This letter is titled, Don't Be Afraid to Call 911 for Emergency Care. Reports suggest that fewer people are going to the hospital with heart attack and stroke symptoms in the past few weeks. Some people may avoid timely care for fear of contracting coronavirus or, quote, burdening emergency workers or hospitals. The American Heart Association and other leading medical associations have come together to make it clear that calling 911 immediately is still your best chance of surviving or saving a life. It is still safe for anyone in need of care to go to the hospital. EMS and hospital workers are trained to help you safely and quickly, even during a pandemic. Hospitals are sanitizing, and many have separate facilities and treatment areas for coronavirus patients to reduce potential contact. If you or a loved one experience heart attack warning signs, discomfort in your chest, back, jaw, or stomach, shortness of breath, and other possible signs, breaking out in a cold sweat, nausea, or lightheadedness, call 911. If you have stroke symptoms, think fast. Face drooping, arm weakness, speech slurring, or other difficulty, then it's time to call 911. When a medical emergency strikes at any time, don't delay. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Signed, Robert A. Harrington, President of the American Heart Association, Athena Pappas, President of the American College of Cardiology, Michelle Albert, President of the Association of Black Cardiologists, B. Kim President of Heart Failure Society of America, Andrea M. Russo, President of Heart Rhythm Society, and James C. Stevens, President of American Academy of Neurology. Etisham Mahmoud, President of the Society for Cardiovascular Angiography and Interventions, and William Yakis, President of the American College of Emergency Physicians. Again, don't be afraid to call 911 for emergency care. And we'll close today with a return to the Letters to the Editor section of the Des Moines Register and a letter written by Jan Patterson of Marion titled, Voices Matter, Lives More So. The most important thing Americans can do for our democracy is vote. That's the basis for everything from our local officials to the president of these United States. However, we shouldn't have to take a chance or possibly expose the election officials to the virus by voting in this pandemic. Many states already vote exclusively by mail. All of the states should follow their example. Counties already have the process in place to vote by absentee ballot. By including everyone who can vote, We can save countless lives, and isn't that the goal in a worldwide pandemic? The life you save could be yours. Our postal service is an integral part of our nation and would play an even bigger part if we all vote by mail. We should all support what postal workers do as they keep America going. Call the auditor's office. Ask for an absentee ballot. Reach out to our senators and urge them to support the National Disaster and Emergency Ballot Act. No one should die because they cast a vote. Signed, Jan Patterson of Marion. And that's it for our second hour of the Register on IRIS. We're so glad to have you listening. I'm your reader, Paula Caresi. Coming up next, obituaries from the Des Moines Register.